Why don't you take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. If you were with us last week, then you know that we started something that we didn't finish. We started walking through a passage that probably should have been completed in one week, but we stopped in the middle. One passage that answers two really big questions. And they're questions that were significant in the time of Jesus, and they're questions that are significant for us still today. Really, maybe questions that you've, you've wondered about. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The relationship between law and gospel. Last week, we began, and I, I asked you last week to take your Bibles, and I encourage you to find that, that page in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we, we held the Old Testament in our hands. And we did that because it's important for us to remember that when Jesus came, he already had that part of the completed scriptures. Genesis through Malachi, the Bible you read is the Bible Jesus had. And for generations, people knew the scriptures, were committed to the scriptures. And remember, the Jew, these are people who knew their Bibles. They loved them. They were committed to them. Were, this was the standard. And then Jesus comes, and he starts proclaiming a message that people wondered, is that consistent? There were questions about what Jesus believed about the Old Testament. Is he saying things that are consistent or contradictory? Important questions, right? They love the Bible like we love the Bible. And now here's this man proclaiming a gospel, a good news of the kingdom of God, a message of salvation. But they're saying, but what about the Old Testament? I feel like I should point this way. Old Testament's that way, from my perspective. What about the sacrificial system? What about all the things that God required? What do we do with the law of God if we believe the message of Jesus? And that's where we're picking up this morning. How does what Jesus taught impact our relationship with the law of God that was given in the Old Testament? Last week, we walked through these first two verses that Jesus came to fulfill the law, but there's still questions to be answered. Remember the context. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is there. He's, he's giving this sermon, and it's spread over three chapters in our Bibles. And we're still towards the beginning. He's not gotten very far into the sermon, but he wants to be clear about these things. Yes, he's announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, but it isn't something that's disconnected from the Old Testament. Yes, he is giving commands and instructions, but it's not the start of something necessarily new. It's a continuation. It's a fulfillment of everything that's already been given. We like to draw hard lines, don't we? After all, there's the old and then there's the new. And new's always better. We know this. Jesus wants them to know, I didn't come to do away with the scriptures. I haven't come to replace the scriptures. He says, instead, I've come to fulfill them. And so we talked about this last week, and Stephen just referred to it. For generations, animals were killed, blood was shed for the, for the people to be made right before God. Well, Jesus came and he fulfilled it, so animals no longer need to be killed because of Jesus' death. There were ceremonial laws, and we talked about a little bit how these different things were fulfilled. 
We considered how the Old Testament was an announcement of Jesus and that everything came before Jesus pointed towards him and he came to fulfill and continue the plan of God. It's not a new plan of God. It's the same plan of God that had been continued throughout the Old Testament and Jesus came to fulfill and to continue that plan. That's where we were last week. And man, I wish these were one sermon because they, they need each other. Just trusting that you'll be able to remember back. But I want you to consider that these four verses near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are absolutely central to our understanding of Jesus and what he's done. Think about it this way. In one hand, Jesus has the Old Testament, the law of God, the sacrificial system. And in the other hand, he has his message and the work that he came to do, what he would accomplish on the cross. And what he's doing in four verses really is, is bringing those together and showing us how they fit, how they go together. Here's what I hope you recognize, or maybe at least by the end of the sermon. This is central. Putting all this stuff together rightly, it's a big deal. Here's why. It's, it's at the heart of how we're reconciled to God. What's the relationship between the law of God, the commands of God, what he's called us to do, and our salvation? Do we enter the kingdom of God based on what we do? Or do we enter the kingdom of God another way? Let me use church vocabulary. Are we saved by grace? Or are we saved by works of the law? And if you think you know the answers, and I think most of you think that you do, and you probably do, but, but let me give you a follow-up question, something just to help us not oversimplify. If we say that it's by grace, then what do we do with the law? What do we do with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which sounds a lot like law? What do we do with passages like Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. What do we do with that? Understanding this passage rightly will enable us to understand many other passages rightly. And trust me, I feel the burden of this. I wrestled this week because we need to understand this rightly. We're in Matthew 5, and I'm going to read the two verses we considered last week and then add the next two verses to it. So we're in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. I hope you'll open a copy of God's Word and follow along as I read. The Word of God. Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, one more time. Last week, we were in verses 17 to 18, and we answered the question, What's the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament? 
an important question, and it really it lays the foundation for the next question. What's the relationship between the Christian and the Old Testament? Is the law something that we should be thinking about? Or is that just Old Testament stuff that we can pass by? Now, let me give this point of clarification. This morning when I speak of the law and when Jesus speaks of the commands, I just want to say this, we're going we're to be referring to the moral law of God in the Old Testament, okay? We talked last week, Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. So we're not asking the question this morning, do we need to kill lambs, okay? He fulfilled the ceremonial um, laws for cleanliness and uncleanliness. There's whole sections that are, are fully fulfilled. But this morning I'm asking, and if you, if you want to just put it in this thought, think Ten Commandments. Think the moral law of God. The things that he's called us to do. What do we do with that? And this is a real question, and maybe it's a question you've never thought of before. Are we called to live underneath the Ten Commandments? Or did Jesus just say he came and he did away with that? And that's part of the question we're trying to, to understand this morning. I think it gets oversimplified. Are we responsible for obeying the law of God? And what we may be inclined to do, if someone just hits us on the street with this question, we may be inclined to say something like Paul says in Romans 6, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Right? It's a good answer. We are not under the law, but under grace. But does that answer the question? We can go to Galatians 2. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And we say, I'm a grace guy. I'm going to read a lot this morning because the scripture has a lot to say on this. Galatians 3. This might be your answer to the question, what's our relationship to the law? Paul says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And I just want you to know how hard this sermon is for me because I'm reading a lot of scripture. I want to talk about it all. I'm just going to kind of give you some things. We're going to keep moving. Galatians 3, 23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, keep going. There's lots of scripture describing our relationship with the, the law. And this could be our conclusion. The law has been set aside. The law was there for those who were before Christ, but grace has come and the law has passed away. And we may even go so far as to say we have no relationship with the law because of faith. And yet then we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. And we need to reconcile these things because the Bible does not contradict itself. Hear the words of Christ again. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I was tempted just to keep pushing into this narrative, but I'm, I'm not comfortable going very far without making this very clear. And I think Paul has already made it clear for us. We are not saved by works of the law. Romans 3, 28. We hold that no one is justified. What does that mean? No one's made right before God based on works of the law. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Let's be clear, crystal clear. We are not saved by works of the law. But Jesus says this. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And there's a lot going on in verse 19. And maybe we'll circle back another time to answer all the questions. We're not even going to touch the levels of commands he's talking about here. I could just say as a note that someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest command? And he had an answer. And he said, the second one is like it. There's also the difference, this reference to positions within the kingdom of heaven. But I I don't want to get far from the main point this morning. I want to push into the, the main point, which is this. Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the commands of God. And not only that, there's an expectation that the people of God know, obey, and teach his commands. Do you see the contrast there? It's it's pretty clear, isn't it? There's a warning for those who would not obey his commands and who would teach others not to obey his commands. I don't want to be in that category. There's blessing for those who know the commands of God and teach the commands of God. There's a lot here, greater, lesser commands, positions in the kingdom of heaven, but just following the main thought, what's the main thing he's communicating? I think it's this, the people of God must not neglect the commands of God. Main point in this first half of the sermon, the people of God must not neglect the commands of God. I'm going to have a lot to say about grace in a minute. But this is a point we cannot rush past. And it's actually vital. If, if we're going to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we've got to understand this. Jesus takes the command of God seriously. He's calling us to obedience. And let me just give you an example of some things to come. You can just look down a little bit in your Bible. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's quoting the law of God. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 43. You've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Seems like Jesus has a lot to say about the way we live. I could give several minutes giving examples, but 
what I want you to hear is Jesus is not backing away from the law of God. He's not giving us permission to back away from it. He says in verse 19, we should be people who obey and who teach others to obey. It sounds a lot like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Go you into all the world, baptizing, name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. What's our relationship with the, the law, the commands of God? Well, I think we see first that they should not be ignored. We should be a people who are eager to obey them. Okay, so that's our, our line of thinking. And then we read the next verse, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are they? These are the religious leaders. This is the guy in the temple who says, I fast twice a week. Unless your righteousness exceeds that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you think, well, maybe you got 19 wrong, right? Because you said we need to obey the commands, and then logically, this is putting us in a bad position, isn't it? Jesus saying that we must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? What do we do with that? Jesus says we must keep the commands of God. And unless we keep the commands of God even better than those who claim to have kept them best, we can never enter the kingdom of God. Do we have a problem? What Jesus is telling us is our righteousness must exceed theirs. What does that mean for us? Is he saying it's impossible for you to be saved? And let me just say this. If it's true that we must be saved by keeping the law, if it's true that we must be saved by the, our ability to be righteous on our own, yes, we have a problem. But as we read the whole of Scripture, the Scriptures are also clear that we do not rely on our own righteousness. What we see in this verse is Jesus telling us we need a greater righteousness. We need a righteousness we cannot produce on our own. And church, this is the message of the gospel. There is a greater righteousness available. He says, you need a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And I want to tell you, church, with joy, that righteousness is available. We have to go outside of this text to understand it. How do we get that righteousness? Where does it come from? How do we enter the kingdom of heaven? The Bible is clear that God has provided a way for us to have a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. We're going to talk about two kinds of righteousness. First, we're going to talk about the righteousness Christ gives us, and then we're going to talk about the righteousness Christ produces in us. First, consider Romans 3. I told you I was going to read a lot this morning. Romans 3, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since the law comes, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the primary purpose of the law. The law was given to show us our sin. The law was given to show you, you can't do it. Verse 21. But now... This is good news. 
Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. What is, rather who is, the righteousness of God apart from the law? He says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We said last week, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the gospel. You cannot keep the law. You cannot be righteous on your own. Jesus came and kept the law. He was perfectly righteous, and he died and rose again so that his righteousness could be credited to you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake he was made sin, who knew no sin, the perfect one was made sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Go back to Romans 3. And I hope you'll read it again this afternoon because some time sitting with this will, will be helpful. Verse 27. We, we, we read this together earlier, actually. What then becomes of our boasting? Remember the Pharisee in the temple, fast twice a week? This guy? What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is God a God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? This is important for us. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Our focus this morning is on the relationship between the Christian and the law of God. And we must be clear on this. We can never be saved by the law. And let me also say, the law was never meant to save. This is something that, that gets thrown around, and this is just sloppy, but we do it. We say things like, the law, that was the plan of God in the Old Testament, but then he came, there's a new plan. No, no, no. Jesus is not a plan B, Right? The law, the scripture says, was never meant to forgive. The law was a pointer. It was a, a preparation. It was leading us to Jesus. Galatians 3 again. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until faith would be revealed. That was coming. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It wasn't meant to save us. And if there were those who perhaps got close to fulfilling the law, and, and no one really did. But there are some who thought they did. And, and Paul says, I was one of those. If everyone else looked at me and looked at my credentials, let me read his words, Philippians 3. Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and in glory in Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. 
though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks they can trust in themselves, Paul says, I have more. I've got, I got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, Paul says, blameless. He had all the credentials, but then what does he say? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. I'm reading a lot, but you see how all this, just go read the New Testament. Here's your homework. Just read the New Testament this afternoon, okay? And just underline, just, it's beautiful seeing how it all connects. Buy you a Coke if you do it. Just read the New Testament this afternoon, okay? Tell me, tell me later. The only way to receive Christ and his righteousness is by grace through faith. It's not by keeping the law. I think we've made that crystal clear. But here's where I want to push us a little further. Because I don't think that's all Jesus is talking about in this verse. Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we know that the only way we can have that righteousness is when Christ gives us his righteousness. But this is also in this context where we're told to honor the commands of God. And then Jesus is about to preach a sermon about obeying the commands of God. Which we can't do on our own. Let me say it this way. He's calling us to live in righteousness. He fulfilled the law. He gave us his righteousness so that we can live in righteousness and live in a way that's different than anyone else ever could live because we have the Spirit of God within us. And I think this is a fulfillment of what Christ said, God said in Jeremiah, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I'm going to make a people for myself who have my law in them and who live out my law. If we think about the Old Testament as something that was for them, but then Jesus tells us that he's come to satisfy the demands of the law. We get his righteousness, but then he creates within us a love for his law. He enables us to live in a way the scribes and the Pharisees could never live. Out of a heart that's been made new, their obedience was skin deep, wasn't it? It was external. But in Christ, we're enabled to live with a righteous heart produced by the Spirit of God. I think this is important, but I also want to be clear. This is not salvation by works. 
We are justified by grace through faith, and that is done. But then God gives us a spirit, and he calls us not to neglect the commands of God. He enables us to live with a righteousness that's different than the world. So, friends, if you're in Christ, your righteousness, your good deeds done through the Spirit do exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. John Stott said it this way, Christian righteousness far surpasses the Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than degree. Christ's righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it's deeper being a righteousness of the heart, the righteousness that is pleasing to God, an inward righteousness of mind and motive, for the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus didn't come and save us and then send us out to live however we please. He saved us, he gave us a new heart, and he sends us out to live in righteousness. Let me show you a couple passages that bring these things together. The righteousness Christ gives for our salvation and the life that produces because of the Spirit. Romans 8. There is thou therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Full stop. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, and this is a big one, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who, he goes on, walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We see this connection between the righteousness being fulfilled in us and us becoming a people who walk in the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. You hear that? There's a kind of person who does not submit to the law of God. It's a person of the flesh. But then there's a person of the Spirit who does. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And I think this helps us understand verse 19. We are made, we are saved, we are made righteous to be people who live in righteousness. Is it true that in Christ we've been set free from the curse of the law? Yes. We've also been saved so we can live in obedience to the commands of God. Salvation is of God, but it's not only what we've been saved from, it's what we've been saved to. Because of the righteousness of Christ, you are saved from the wrath of God if you're in Christ. But we're also saved and given the ability to live in obedience to the commands of God. We are made to be a people zealous for good works. And so this is where I just want to push and say, let's be careful how we answer the question, what's our relationship between the Christian and the law? Are we condemned by it? 
in Christ? The answer is no. Do we set aside the law of God? No. We're God's people. We live by his commands. The temptation is to think, because I've been saved by grace, I can abandon the law. It's the fallacy of Romans 5 and 6. The law came to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life in Christ. So the question is, what shall we say? Can we, can we continue in sin? God forbid. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And this is important for us as we lead into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling us to live in ways that we can never live apart from the law of the Spirit of God. The law of God is deeper and more demanding than the Pharisees even knew. The standard of God is high, but God has enabled us to live as his kind of people. I read earlier from Ephesians 2, but I didn't finish it. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the work of God, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The beginning of that chapter says you were dead. You could not live as a righteous person. But God saved us by grace through faith so that we could live in his righteousness. The rest of Matthew 5 teaches us what that righteousness looks like. What's our relationship with the law of God? We are free from its curse. And we are set free to live in obedience to it. I'm going to end with another reading just to continue the theme of me just reading to you all morning. But I think, and, and go and read it again for yourself. I think it really ties together what we've seen. What is the relationship of the Christian between the law? What's our relationship with the law? Listen to what Paul says, and then we'll end with this. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? That's the question. Do we just continue to sin because the law has been taken care of by Christ? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free and have become slaves of what? Of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so that now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruits were you getting at that time from the things from which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ, you are justified before God. And you are set free to live in righteousness. We read two weeks ago, this was in the sermon that Jesus is preaching. He says, you're salt, you're light, because we're living as his kind of people so that the world may see our good works and give glory to our Father. May we live as his people, honoring his commands so the world will see and believe. Let's pray together.